0: Podcastle episode 205 for April 24th, 2012. Outlander by Samantha Henderson. Rated PG. And welcome back. Back to Podcastle. I don't usually get to say that at the beginning of the episode, but... I missed saying it last week, and I missed you guys. I'm Dave Thompson, and yeah, we're back, baby. And first off, I wanna say thank you so much for all the people who sent kind wishes to us during our surprise hiatus last week. It was all really appreciated, and I guess what they say is true. It is nice to be missed, but it's also really, really nice to be back. But before we get started, It's come to my attention that our own MK Hobson has herself a cool little Kickstarter campaign that I want to tell you all about. This campaign is for her latest book set in the same world as The Native Star, The Hidden Goddess, and Podcastle Zone The Warlock, and The Man of the Word. However, it's not a direct sequel to any of those stories. It's called The Warlock's Curse, and dudes, I really want to see this thing funded for Hobson. She's doing something really cool with it. The upfront cost for this isn't going to go directly to Hobson. It's so she can pay her editor, her cover artist, and all the other people who go into making the book. Hobson's money will come from the sales of the actual book, and I have to say, it's a pretty cool idea. A pretty cool and interesting way to handle things in this brave new world of publishing. So go to Kickstarter and check out The Warlock's Curse. Tell Hobson we sent you. Alright, let's get on to this week's story. We've got a real funny one for you, and like I said last week, by now most of you know that when I say funny, it could mean something else, like sad, horrible, sexy, excessively violent, rampaging teddy bears. Sometimes, I guess my words are kind of like masks. Ah, masks. Batman, Phantom of the Opera, Zorro what is it about masks that we find so fascinating? Some would surely say they're sexy, others might suggest they're mysterious, and the two are certainly not mutually exclusive. Is it because when we wear them, we're hiding something? Protecting someone or something, like a secret identity or a secret agenda? Well today's story is about masks, make no mistake about it, and just so I'm not, you know, misleading any of you, it's not a superhero story. Now it's a story of swordplay, honor, and secrets, so let's head on down to the courtyard and kick things off. Podcastle's very proud to present Outlander by Samantha Henderson. Originally published in the Feathered Edge anthology, which came out earlier this year, and is now available both in print and in ebook form. Check it out if you're looking for that lace and blade fix. Samantha Henderson lives in Covina, California, by way of England, South Africa, Illinois, and Oregon. Her short fiction and poetry have been published in Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, Goblin Fruit, and Weird Tales, and reprinted in the year's Best Fantasy and Science Fiction, Steampunk 2, Steampunk Reloaded, and in the upcoming Mammoth Book of Steampunk. Fans of Escape Pod and PodCastle will remember such stories as Cinderella's Suicide and The Mermaid's Tea Party. She's the co-winner of the 2010 Riesling Award for Speculative Poetry and is the author of the Forgotten Realms novel Dawnbringer and The Very Twisted Heaven's Bones. For more information, please see her website at samanthahenderson.com. Our reader this time out is our own special sword-toting lizard man, Graham Dunlop of Pseudopod and Cast of Wonders, not to mention my personal hero. Yes, we just featured him a couple episodes back with Levite Buried Eyes, but Graham totally came to our rescue with this week's episode, so really, maybe he's a hero to all of us. Hey, who are you calling Barbarian, pal? Enjoy the story. Outlander,
1: by Samantha Henderson I well know the whole disgraceful affair was my fault. I was the one that befriended that great beast of an outlander, spawn of his border clan-house, and led him with such fatal consequences to my family's heart. But Luca Brehel seemed such a harmless oaf, charming in a way rare among my fellows, and I thought it was a kindness to introduce him to proper society. He'd been sent by his house to pay his respects to Cyrene and its duke, "'and was housed among the rest of the young bucks of the houses, "'too far and unfortunate to live in the heart of the city spectacular. "'The Duke maintained the gentleman's academy near his palaces "'as much to keep track of the scions of the great houses "'as to provide a proper dwelling and education for his young nobles, "'and like other sons of the great houses, "'I kept rooms there as well as House Torale, my family's compound.' Uncivilised as the border houses are, no one of any intelligence underestimates the importance of such as Haus Brehel in defending the boundaries of the lands Cyreni lays claim to. They raise sons trained on the battlefield rather than the dueling ground, and have little time for the arts and graces that make city life so sweet." Luca was a well-built man, a head taller than myself, with a stance and a walk that spoke more of tracking the mountain raiders in the forests that bounded the eastern bank of the river Sildpath, than of dancing at court or arranging oneself beautifully in the scholar's gardens. His facial scars were earned after his first blooding. He'd killed one of a pack of raiders who had been terrorising a Crofter family, and they were cut into his face by his own uncle, they were brute slices across each cheek, knotted and twisted as nature would have, with no art to them. True, no man grown of the Cyrene nobility will show his face without its scars, just as no woman will go unmasked. but. In the city it's the fashion to seek a scarifier with a sense of the aesthetic who will cut and shape and take into account the contours of the face and flatter rather than disfigure. My father would have no less than the Duke's own scarifier when it came my turn. Luca's scars, on the other hand, recalled the tradition of Cyrene's founders and echoed our warlike past, when a man's scars were always earned and never things of fashion. I confess I felt a slight shame when I looked into my mirror and saw my own, double lines of raised pink tissue that curved under my cheekbones and flattered the angle of my jaw. But our belligerent forebears founded Cyrene with a purpose, to create a place of beauty and scholarship where the finer arts might flourish. We are able to defend ourselves, surely, for our navy is unmatched, our border allies stalwart, and our sons train at the Duke's behest in the arts of the blade, as Cyrene's charter sets down. But surely we are right to seek a brighter, more glittering future, rather than dwell on a bloody past. No one mocked Brehill's scion. There was no amusement to be had in such obvious discourtesy. But there was much sport, or so thought some of the academy cadets, to be had in the clever digs and riposts so easy to fling about the outlander who had no idea of the politics, alliances and dalliances of Cyrene's ruling families. I might have joined in, but I liked this unspoiled youth and his good nature in the face of all sallies, something that spoke of clean air and honest work. Perhaps I was beginning to tire of the endless social dance of my fellows, and so when young Griselle of House Sakarzi tossed a towel at Luca after a race about the Sparrows Walk, and bade him mop himself, for he was sweating like a farmer. "'I pointed out in the mild tones of an elder to a puling boy "'that my family were as good as farmers, "'and his house was not too ashamed to provide manure "'from their swine for our orchards. "'Or do you fancy your apples and cheese, "'wine and good white bread are flown magically "'by little fairies from the mountains of plenty, Grizel? I said, with the lightest of glances "'at his slightly protruding belly. Grizel did like his food.' "'He blushed faintly. "'The Valmer twins, both masked in identical constructions of pale green feathers, "'were present to witness the outcome of the race between the three of us "'and giggled behind their fans. "'I wondered idly what Margie and Flor Valmer would do once one or the other was wed,' for much of their aesthetic effect was due to the fact that there were two of them the same, that dressed the same, masked the same, walked the same, gestured the same, and rarely spoke. "'Luca knows I mean no insult, Kai,' said the red-faced Gwizel, turning to Luca, who flicked him lightly on the thigh with the damp towel. ''I take none,'' he said in the broadest imaginable country twang, and the three of us laughed all the way back to quarters while the Valmers drifted home, accompanied by a formidable chaperone in a dull black mask that spoke only of barriers immovable. (laughs) ''Ha! I know I'm a right oaf compared to you lot,'' Luca confided to me in the baths later that day, ''and I take none of the teasing ill.'' I confess this place is dazzling, with your gardens and palaces and ladies arrayed all over like colourful birds with their feathers and silks. I laughed. Come visit my house tomorrow. We're not as dazzling as some, but I can claim we do shine somewhat. And Luca was dazzled by my family. What outlander wouldn't be? And when he saw my sister, as she greeted him at my mother's side in the vestibule of our house, in the creamy robes of a maiden, and the bird-of-water's mask she favoured when we had company, he stood like a pollaxed ox before it fell. I was amused. I curse my blindness when I say it. I was amused. He made a short, inelegant bow, and they nodded in return— I saw Lilium's eyes through her mask glance at him, at me, and I shrugged in return. She must take those I called my friends, graceless though they may be. At dinner my mother was gracious as a queen to a deserving subject. My father preoccupied but curious about the alliances between the House Brehel and the other border clans. Lilium was more direct. Is it true she broke in? tilting the blue crystal-woven wings of her mask at him, that outlander women go unmasked. My mother's composure didn't break, but I saw my sister twitch when she kicked her. Oh, they mask in public, of course, Luca replied unperturbed. But some of them, especially if they're married, will bear their face before their own families. I will say that I haven't seen Lilliam's face since she was twelve years old. "'Interesting,' she remarked in a voice that implied most crude, and I saw my mother frown, whether at Lillian's rudeless or outlander impropriety I didn't know. "'At the fruit-course my father withdrew, as it was his tiring time, and my mother went with him, leaving Lillian behind to pour our wine. She tore her bread apart restlessly, glancing at our guest from behind her mask.' Luca had risen with me as my mother left the table and sat again when I sat. "'A gracious lady, your mother,' he remarked. "'A lady much occupied with the concerns of her house,' broke in Lilium snappishly, although she plays the part of the idle hostess when called for. There was an uncomfortable pause. "'My own mother busies herself about the library,' Lucas said finally." I'm afraid she has no head for business and leaves that to my sisters, the younger at least. It was a great relief to her, I think, when Grizel reached her majority. Lilium's head snapped up and she regarded the outlander intently. "'Your house has a library?' "'Of course, my lady,' he said. "'Surely all houses of any consequence do.' "'Did I not know him better and know his guileless nature?' I would have suspected my barbarian friend of an internal chuckle at my family's expense, but I knew full well that in his naivety he was innocent. Lilium crushed a bead of bread flat between her elegant fingers. We do not. Silly, I chuckled. Of course we do. Beneath the azure-lacquered rim of her mask, her lower lip curved down, a history the most banal of cyclopedias, the romance of the simbi, and a set of moral stories suitable for the children and wives of the nobility, not what I call a proper library. My most respected sister is, of course, an idiot. I said to Luca, with such resources that the Scholars Guild commands, it's hardly necessary for a house to maintain such an investment in books and documents. It's best all lie together to be available to those who have an interest. What's filed and catalogued is what the scholars consider significant, Lilium snapped. The rest moulders in the archives, while the house scions puzzle out questions of genealogy and laws of inheritance. Matters of science and the observances of natural history linger uncatalogued on the shelves. "'My mother could use one of your mind to assist her,' observed Luca. "'The indexing of our house's archives is a formidable task, for we're plagued with many old documents.' "'What kind of documents?' Lilliam's eyes were bent down to the task of further dissecting her bread. The presence of the unlettered barbarian must be disconcerting her, and at once I regretted causing her discomposure, and delighted, in the sadistic way of elder brothers, in tweaking her in her superior ways. My grandfather travelled beyond the great waste, Past Kudashar, and sought ancient books and scrolls from the merchants that travelled there, he told her, and my grandam was not best pleased at the quantity of stuff he brought back. There was a collection of the poetry of El Kazmiel, I recollect, and uh, a great pile of old records having to do with the household of the Kudashari Khan, one of them at least, many years dead, Lilliam ceased making doughy pills and placed her hands on the table before her. I noticed her nails were painted to match her mask. "'And uh, histories? The Kudashari were a great people for record-keeping, I am told, and for accounts of the lands beyond them bordering the Gauthal Sea.' Loka's fingers touched the rough cloth over his heart. "'I must get him to a proper tailor,' I thought.' "'I regret that I do not know. "'It's the provenance of the women of the house, I'm afraid. "'Although my mother did show me once a book she found in the shambles "'that might have been a history, if such interests you. "'A tiny thing, bound in violet leather.' "'He motioned, sketching something that could have fit in the palm of his hand. "'As far as I could see, it was an account of small villages along the Galthall Mountains, "'just a page to each, with small drawings in green and gold.' My mother told me it detailed the primary goods produced by each croft, a merchant's tool, really, made small for travel. I regret my coup de shah was not good enough to read much, but it was a beautiful thing, that. Like, each town became, in telling of it, a child's tale. Suddenly, Lillian rose and curtsied to Luca, a scrap of a bob just shy of polite, and I was glad he didn't know enough to realise he'd just been insulted. "'She swept out of the room without saying good-night. You, "'You mustn't mind, my sister,' I said, "'pouring us both another measure of wine, "'putting my boots up on the nearest chair. "'She's a sharpish harridan at times, "'with none of my good temper.' "'I don't mind,' said my unsophisticated friend, likewise putting his feet up "'and swallowing his good red wine down to the drakes in one motion.' I stayed that night in my old rooms while Lucar returned to his academy quarters, accompanied by a servant and unaccountably steady after an enormous quantity of wine. I slept in and, seeking a late breakfast in the morning room, walked into an argument between my father and Lilium about the Torrelai orchards. My house owns rich lands past the south fork of the Lithia, where we grow the black pears that are really dusky purple, with firm flesh fading from violet beneath the skin to pale white at the centre. They're good to eat, mild and juicy and sweet, and better for wine, the rich fruity pear wine that's drunk by house and commoner at the harvest celebrations in the fall but the bud blight struck our orchards three years ago, and we haven't had a good crop since. My father turned to me, and I saw Lilliam's fist clench against the creamy fabric of her dress. I stifled a smile. Somewhere in the dusty reaches of the scholar's archives, she had found an account of what she took to be the blight and the methods of treatment— My father was a man of action, not scholarship, and was too impatient to listen when Lilium set before him plans of attack, burning the blighted trees, bringing in saplings crossed with native pears she said were resistant to the disease. She said the Torrelay black pears, famed through Cyrene and beyond, were inbred over the generations and weak in the face of diseases a bastard tree would throw off. Such advice rubbed my father wrong. He saw the Torelay trees as the height of breeding, and thought that to speak against their purity denigrated the work of his ancestors, or rather the dedicated orchard master who worked under them. "'It's time she was married,' he told me, raising a hand to cut her off. "'It's time she turned her interests to service inside her husband's house, "'keeping his accounts and household matters in hand. "'Such is the use of scholarship, not interfering with the affairs of men. "'Although I love my sister, I had to agree. "'Our family business was the public face of the house, as were the men with their scars.' Behind the facades of mask and home was the place of women. "'Kai,' said Lilium, when my father left, "'you are surely not as stupid as you look. You know we will lose everything, lands, status, and house, if the blight continues. Can you talk to father?' "'It's no use, love,' I said. "'He is adamant, and for all I know he has the right of it. Our stock—' "'has held strong for hundreds of years since the founding of the city. "'The Torelay trees will outlast the blight. You'll see.' "'Her day-mask quivered. "'Of all the plagues of humanity, the pride of men is the worst,' she huffed. "'And are you inviting that great hulk of an outlander to supper again?' "'I will if I want,' I retorted, "'and you're to be nicer to him this time.' "'I was perfectly polite.' No, you weren't, miss, I snapped, and I'm heir of this house and my friends will come if I like. Oh, I don't mind, she said with a flip of her day mask as she left the room, leaving me alone with my smoked fish. Luca did come again, and again, much to my sister's annoyance. Although he never gained her favour, my parents became fond of him for the same reasons I had, his simplicity and good humour, and he often stayed at our house. Lilian was left to tend us of an evening, and patiently Luca answered her questions about his house and the borderlands, for all she was sullen to the point of rudeness. I don't know how exactly Luca came to earn the enmity of San Mano Boradcor, the duke's eldest son and prince of the city. He still could be remarkably oafish at times and was clumsy in the pouring and drinking of wine, and I knew that such irritated the prince. Still, it didn't explain the increasing dark looks and snappish tones San Mano took on the occasions he encountered Luca. My friend, of course, was childishly blind to the problem. It came to its dreadful conclusion a sequence of events I will rue to my death the day Luca passed the prince in a close corridor of the gentleman's quarters. Luca nodded respectfully enough and with adequate grace. I had managed to teach him something at least, but in the narrow hallway he somehow managed to elbow San Mano hard in the ribs, so that the duke's son halted, gasping with the pain of it. I wasn't watching closely, but I still cannot understand how it happened. It was close quarters indeed, and Luca was tall, but not freakishly so. It was almost as if he'd done it on purpose, but, of course, my simple friend would never have done such. "'Your pardon, your grace,' called Luca jovially enough. "'I will never be used to the fine and narrow masonry of this place.' For some reason he'd put on the broad accent of a countryman, and it must have irritated the prince further. "'Watch yourself, you clumsy fool, or get back to the pigsty you came from,' he growled, still grasping his side and struggling to stay at his full height. Luca must have elbowed him harder than it seemed. The prince's companions and I looked askance at each other, and a dreadful silence filled the hall. Luca just stared at the prince, not even reddening at the insult. I moved to grasp Luca's arm and hurry him away. ''I did apologise, Your Grace,'' he said, shaking me off, never looking away from San Mano. ''And I don't appreciate my mother's and my sister's house being called a pigsty.'' His accent was, if possible, broader than ever. The prince straightened his perfectly straight clothing and brushed an invisible speck of dust from his embroidered sleeve. From what I hear, the women of House Brehel are no less piggish than yourself, he sneered. Tell me, do your women scar themselves like men on mudfields of the sill-path as you did? Someone gasped. It might have been me and then the silence deepened and enveloped us all like black smoke does the candlelight. Luca was frozen still like the rest of us, and then took one giant stride forward by all the gods I wish I had the foresight to fling myself on his path, and struck the prince of the city full across the face. There was a moment where everything seemed suspended, then San Mano fell heavily on one knee. Galvanised, Two of the prince's companions seized Luca by the arms and dragged him back. I took his shoulder and did the same. He didn't resist. We couldn't have moved him if he had. A trickle of blood snaked from San Mano's nostril as his third man, Jago of House Corielli, if I recall correctly, helped him to his feet. "'I call the blood a duel,' said the prince in a voice like iron." a voice too calm for any kind of comfort. "'Since the hovel your house calls home lies beyond all civilised, Ken, I shall send the challenge to House Torale. I found my voice. "'Very well, Your Grace.' The three of us managed to move Luca like a heavy but unresisting tree down the corridor. "'I hope, Kai.' continued the prince as he took Jago's proffered handkerchief and mopped the blood from his face. "'I hope that you have learned the foolishness of taking a barbarian into the bosom of your family.' I said nothing. I was not to learn that lesson then, but later. I led Luca through the streets in silence as we made our way home— He was quiet until we reached House Torrelai's gates. Kai, he said, sending the challenge to Torrelai, does that bode ill for your family? I would not return the Duke's ill will for your hospitality. I saw nothing on his face beyond his scars and simple honesty. The hypocrite. I sighed. No, not for an affair of honour such as this. "'It's merely that he must send the challenge to your house, "'or, failing that, a house with which you are allied. "'And since you've eaten at Toile's table, and since you're my friend—' "'He took my hand. "'I hope you'll always stand my friend, Kai.' "'I returned his clasp. "'Assuredly, I will. "'Knowing now what I didn't then, I say again, "'the damnable hypocrite.' Why did you do it, Luca? I said as the major-domo hurried to unlatch the heavy gate. And why did you hit him so hard? He shrugged and laughed. I didn't think I did. Lillian met us, wearing the dusky plum-coloured mask she often used when she planned to visit the scholar's library. Her street-cloak told me that she'd already been there. THE IDIOT, SHE SAID, HER EYES SHINING WHEN I TOLD HER THE NEWS. THE ABSOLUTE IDIOT, SHE TURNED TO LUCA. YOU ARE AN IDIOT, YOU KNOW THAT? LILLIAM, I GROWLED AT HER AS I HADN'T SINCE WE WERE YOUNG BEFORE I WAS SCARRED AND SHE WAS MASKED. SHE TOSSED HER HEAD AND SWEPT AWAY DOWN THE HALL. I TURNED TO LUCA, READY TO APOLOGIZE. HE WAS WATCHING MY SISTER'S BACK AS SHE WALKED AWAY, AND HE WAS SMILING. The challenge was delivered that evening. I wrote the reply, and Luca signed it. The fight would take place an hour after dawn at the fencing grounds beside the academy. There was to be no private meeting by the riverbank in this matter, and no time for cooler heads to negotiate a way to satisfy everyone's honour without bloodshed. Luca took a light meal and went to bed early, with a cheerful attitude, slapping me on the back on the way to his room's. I stayed up later than I liked, gnawing a knuckle and thinking how I might get my friend out of Cyrene. The problem was this. Luca knew how to fight well enough, but the weapon of the blood duel is the small sword. I'd seen Luca work with Rapier and Epe, and he was skilled enough to hold his own in the short matches the fencing masters of the academy supervised but I well knew San Mano was an expert in the small sword, with no weakness in its wielding that I had ever seen. He was shorter than Luca, and his reach was not as long, but he was lithe, and the indolent poise he favoured when at his ease belied a wiry frame and the speed of a panther, and his anger, hot that day, would have cooled into a deadly calm by morning, and he was not likely to make a mistake." He might very well kill Luca, and there was no way I could think of to stop it. Luca and I rose early, and he breakfasted on a capon wing and some hot water. I couldn't eat. We arrived at the academy just as dawn broke, and Luca stretched and practiced footwork in the inner sand pits as we waited. I sat and watched him and couldn't speak. He had dressed simply in the rough fabric of his house, with only a silver pin with the wolf's head of brehel at his left shoulder as decoration. As the bells outside chimed with a half hour, he sat beside me. Cheer up, Kai, he told me. I'm not that easy to kill. And if I don't live past this day, no, my own foolishness was at fault, and you were nothing but a friend to me, and made my time in Cyrene a delight. It's... Time to go, was all I could say. Before he rose, he touched the wolf's head lightly. If I'm killed, take this and give it to your sister. I will have failed indeed if I do not irritate her in some way at the last. Even from the bowels of the academy I could hear the rumble of the crowd. I can't remember the last time a blood duel a fight all but guaranteed to end in the death of one of the combatants, had been fought. Not a scion of any house would miss it if he could ride, walk, or be carried to the fencing grounds. I blinked as we passed from the darkness in the corridor to the bright morning light, and the crowd silenced for an instant. Luca's face was solemn now, although he had been cheerful a moment before. With a gesture that looked almost theatrical he frowned and adjusted the strap of his glove before moving to the corner where the challenged was to stand. Immediately a sustained hiss began as those assembled whispered to each other. I saw that the ladies of Cyrene were not worried that an interest in bloodshed should be thought unfeminine, for they were gathered five deep in the risers behind the bravos and bucks of the academy. The Valmur twins were there dressed in lavender this day. The ladies' masks glittered in the pink light of dawn, studded with crystals the colour of the sky, opal, forest, blood and sea, smooth against their faces, horned like devils, or enhanced with wings that rose on either side of their faces. Most wore gowns better suited for the ballroom than a duel silks and linens finely embroidered and dyed to match their masks. They bent their heads together and twittered like birds. Lilium stood with them in the cream gown she favoured and the bird of water's mask she wore the first time Luca came to dinner. She stood still as a post, watching us, and her fists were clenched at her side, and it seemed to me her eyes burned through her mask it saddened me to think that she might wish Luca's death. I took my place beside Luca, who studiously ignored the fuss. A ripple of sound heralded the arrival of the Duke and his entourage, who took their place in the judgment stand where they could see every figure of the fight. I was glad to see my parents made part of the crowd behind him, The affair could hardly interest them save for Luca's slight association with our house through me, and it was gracious of them to show themselves so early in his support. I saw also that Guizel Sarkarzy chose to stand behind Luca's side of the ring, and I flashed him a grateful look. I couldn't help but feel sorry for Timon Baradkor, Duke of Cyrene. He was in a terrible position, for although he had the power to forbid such a fight— The fact that his own son was a principal would make him, or San Mano, look a coward. His face was white and drawn, his scars pink against his pale skin, for all he stood tall and maintained a careful air of indifference. I would bet my inheritance that he had stayed up late the night before, thinking how he might cancel the fight with no loss of honour another murmur, and the glittering mass of spectators separated to admit San Mano Boradcore and his second Jago Corrielli. San Mano strode to the challenger's corner, looking confident and fit. Jago whispered in his ear, and San Mano smiled humorlessly. At a gesture of the dukes, the rapiers were brought forward, and a fluttering gasp rose from the ladies at the sight of the deadly steel. Jago and I bowed, each to each, and examined the selection. All were fine weapons. I chose what seemed to me the heaviest, thinking it was most like the weapons Luca was used to, and after testing the balance I carried it to Luca for his approval. He hefted it and nodded. Out of the corner of my eye I could see San Mano tracing a complicated figure in the air with much skill and little effort usually the seconds are armed as well, and it is our task not to join the fight, but to hold our weapons beneath those of the duelists, to strike away any blow out of bounds, and to halt the fight when protocol is breached. But in a blood duel there could be no foul, no enforced mercy. Our job was only to witness. I have never felt so helpless in my life. A signal from the duke? And the match was on. The code duello specifies what footwork may be used during a duel with the consequences of violations clearly set forth. There is no such restriction in the blood duel save that the combatants are forbidden to leave the ring. San Mano, trained for years under the watchful tutelage of both his father's swordmasters and the academy trainers, instinctively fell into regulation footwork, while Luca, trained on the battlefield and in desperate scrabbles with border raiders, had a style less graceful but more efficient. I had hopes that the sheer audacity of Luca's technique would so disconcert San Mano that the outlander would have an advantage, and, indeed, he did drive the prince to the edge of the ring more than once, with merciless blows from the base of the blade, wielded as if it were a sabre. But soon San Mano's skill and swiftness began to tell on my friend. Again and again his rapier would twist past Luca's guard and come dangerously close to his throat." As one, the watching crowd held their breath to watch the deadly dance, or sigh as a length of lethal metal almost went home. Once, Luca didn't twist away in time, and San Mano's blade opened a cut on his cheek. Luca didn't flinch, though I did, and the wound wasn't obvious until thick blood ran and a dull red drop fell on the sand of the ring. There was a collective gasp, and somewhere in the crowd a woman screamed. Hold! called the duke, as he must at first blood, and the combatants sprang away from each other. I mopped Luca's cheek; a fine sheen of sweat was on his face, but his breath was steady. He takes first blood, I said, low and urgent. You can stop this now without shame, only apologise. He only took the cloth I held to his face from me and pressed harder. Please, Luca, don't waste yourself over one silly incident. If you apologise now, he must accept, and you can go home again to Brehel and forget Cyrene. He smiled at me then, kindly. I can never forget Cyrene. He thrust the bloody Dinnan back at me. And such little faith in my skill from my second. You wound me, Kai, deeper than that overcoddled dog's mate could. I saw he was laughing at me. I looked past his shoulder and caught Lilium's eye. Her lips tightened. "'Resume,' called the Duke, when it was clear that Luca wouldn't make amends. There was finality in his voice. Save that one or the other showed mercy, the match could end only one way. I resolved to make myself watch all and not turn away whatever the outcome. It seemed that Luca had benefited from the respite. For a while San Mano's blade could not come near him. But presently his response time slowed, and he began to give ground one step at a time. Behind the lightning flash of steel San Mano smiled. And then Luca's sword swung wide as if his arm had tired. The prince saw his opportunity and thrust with all his strength behind it straight at Luca's exposed, unprotected torso— If I hadn't seen it, I would have thought it impossible to bring a rapier across the body from that angle and with that speed, but Luca did it, catching the prince's blade with his crossguard and twisting it out of the way. A lesser player than San Mano would have been knocked over, but he maintained his balance, hopping out of the way and keeping his grip on his weapon. With San Mano clear, Luca bent to grasp something from the side of his left boot, I cried out with the crowd when I saw it, a long knife with a thin blade that could be hidden in a boot sheath. He crouched slightly, holding the knife in his left hand with equal skill as the sword in his right. San Mano backed away, his eyes widening. "'Hold!' shouted the Duke, the force of his voice causing the startled and indignant murmurs of the onlookers to fade away. Luca of House Brehel, you are in violation of the code duello and dishonored in the city's sight. You are mistaken your grace, called Luca, never taking his eyes off his opponent, holding both weapons at the ready. "'The code-duello of your own city charter states that blood-duel "'may include a short blade for the weaker hand "'no more than the length of his forearm "'if the challenged combatant desires it. "'I am the challenged, and I do so desire it.' "'There was a shocked silence, and my irreverent friend grinned. "'Nonsense!' bellowed the Duke. "'Nay, it is not,' said Luca. "'Ask your own scholars.' "'A white swathed figure hurried to the Duke's side, gesticulating. "'The Duke bent to him, his face growing pink as his scars. "'I have never heard of such,' I heard him growl. "'It is part of an earlier charter, but never struck out of the record,' called Luca. "'Is your Grace not familiar with it?' "'A second scholar joined the first, and the Duke's face grew redder and redder. "'It seems that it is so,' he called out finally.' But San Mano must have a mean gauche as well. But of course, said Luca in a tone of surprise, I wonder that the prince was not so armed already. Jago Correlli turned and took an offered weapon, bringing it to San Mano. It would have been better for the prince, in retrospect, to refuse the second blade and chance the fight only with his small sword. The dagger, thin and light though it appeared, unbalanced a man trained only to fight one-handed, but he took the blade for pride's sake, and it was his undoing. The duke signaled again, and Luca leapt at San Mano like a tiger, and I couldn't help but feel sorry for the man. He fended off the long blade and the short as well as he might, but simply could not bring the main gauche, the left-handed weapon, to bear, and it dangled uselessly in his fingers." With a sweep of his foot, Luca brought the prince heavily to the ground and pinned his sword hand to the sand with the cross guard against his wrist. He swung the sharp blade of his knife under San Mano's chin and held it there, the point pricking the soft flesh of his neck. San Mano's eyes bulged, wide and helpless. "'Hold your hand!' the duke's voice was ragged. Luca did not take his eyes off his opponent, but he smiled. "'And forsake my honor. It's a strange thing, you ask, master of Cyrene. The duke opened his mouth and closed it again. Whatever he might do after to the heir of Brehel, there were witnesses in the hundreds here, and the weight of Cyrene history and Cyrene honour on his head. I will take one thing in exchange for the prince's life, said Luca in a voice that rang over the audience. THE HAND OF LILIUM OF HOUSE TORROLAE IN MARRIAGE." IN THE SHOCKED SILENCE, THE TWITTERING OF BIRDS. NO, IT WAS THE WOMEN WHERE THEY RANGED IN MASKED ROWS, MY SISTER AMONG THEM, TURNING TO EACH OTHER AND WHISPERING, HANDS COVERING MASKS, COVERING MOUTHS, JABBERING LIKE SPARROWS. IT HIT ME LIKE A BLADE IN THE GUT, COLD SPREADING THROUGH MY LIMBS this brute, this outlander, this barbarian, with a man's life at the tip of his blade, this creature, desired my sister? Someone broke the silence with a strangled cry of, What? It was me. The Duke considered the scene before him, tension pulling his scars high over his cheeks. "'Sweat glistened on the bulging muscles of Luca's bared right arm, "'but the sharp blade beneath the prince's chin didn't move. "'All sorts of calculation were going on "'behind the expressionless facade of the duke's scarred face. "'He held the threads of history in his capable fingers. "'As master of the highest house of Cyrene, "'he could not force any marriage, "'but he could forbid the banns. Even in my anger I understood his hesitation. I had been trained in the duke's halls. The heir to his house could be killed with impunity before him. A woman of the Cyrene house in the ruling family of Brehel, barbarians though they be, could be a powerful tool and would incline more defence of the border rather than less. Torrele was well regarded, but not so highly placed or intermarried with House Boradkor that giving my sister into the hands of a brute like Luca would be seen an insult. And yet to give in to such a demand, to save the life of his son, who was, as his scars attested, supposed to be some sort of warrior, would be seen as weakness. It might be best to let the heir spill his blood on the marble stairs." I certainly thought so. And then my sister, who had stood like a statue through the fight, the reversal, the incredible result, moved, flowed like water from the throng of her masked companions, and bowed her head to the duke. "'I will consent, your grace,' she said, "'with your permission.' I strode across the ring, little caring how close I came to the grinning oath. and his victim pinned beneath him. I took the dais steps two at a time and stood before the Duke, my shocked parents beside him, my sister masked and demure at his side, looking at the ground between us. Your grace, I managed through clenched teeth, you cannot allow this travesty. He flicked a glance at me and I knew he dismissed my rage as inconsequential to his decision. Still, the duke played his game close. "'I do not choose to buy my son's life with a maiden's honour,' he said. Lilium didn't look up as she spoke. "'My honour will not be besmirched by a house-marriage,' she said, "'and if it were, it is nothing to the life of Cyrene's heir.' it was a brilliant move. In an instant she had indebted House Gore bound them to us with bands of iron. And yet, Lilium, I began. Be quiet, boy, said my father. I would have defied him and the Duke, at what cost I shudder to think of now, but Lilium flashed me a glance that seemed to pierce right through me. I had not known her eyes were so blue, so bright, so cold. She turned them back to the ground. "'There are conditions,' she said in a voice as sweet as honey wine. The Duke smiled coldly. "'There always are.' I couldn't see if she smiled in return. "'The toilet orchards,' she said. "'House Bardcore holds them in surety.' They are to be released, with no debt or interest owing, fully into the possession of my family. Beside me, my father tensed. I hadn't known that he had mortgaged our lands and livelihood to the Duke's house. But with harvest so minimal for three years, of course they might be. There was a lot, I realized, I didn't know. The Duke pursed his lips under your family's ownership the blight has decimated the orchards he said are all to be denied the harvest libations for your house's pride she tilted her mask so that the iridescent surface caught the sun and looked him straight in the face with all respect your grace she said that is toralei's business the side of his mouth and the corresponding scars quirked up you said conditions he said "'My father is to be master of games this coming year.' The duke glanced at my father, who stood up straighter under his scrutiny. Beside him, my mother whispered something beneath her breath. "'The master of the annual games which followed the harvest season wielded great power in Cyrene society, the position a jewel greatly desired and jockeyed for among the houses.' The game-master determined which house hosted which game, and who could sit where along the paths of the races, and who took precedence, and the ceremonies that were as important and challenging as the feats of athletic skill. A good game-master could make the fortune, monetary and social, of his house. You don't ask much, do you? The Duke's tone was wry. Perhaps I do, Lillian replied, but your son's life is surely surely worth sacrifice on both our parts. But, but, I sputtered. Lilium flicked her eyes in my direction and bent to the Duke, whispering. He turned a blue glare on me. And you, boy, he said, you are forbidden to challenge the barbarian. Do you understand me? I shut my mouth and turned away from Cyrene's master as he called to Luca to release the prince. Out of the corner of my eye I saw him rise and offer a hand to San Mano, who tentatively took it. Luca pulled his opponent to his feet unceremoniously and slapped him on the back with great good humour. Oaf. My sister bears her burden well. This day I am on my way to visit to bring the blessings of House Torrelay to her and the child she carries. Along the road my escort and myself passed the lands where Torrelay's orchards stand, and the laborers told me that the blight is passing. On the edge of each carefully geometric line of trees was a pear tree of a different sort and the bees hummed merrily in their blossoms, travelling freely back and forth between them and the pure black torelay pears. A heavy smell, slightly tinged with the flavour of wine, drifts across the dusty path. Ah well, I think I shall not mention such to my father. I kept quiet, too, about what Luca told after the wedding, an affair of ceremony and lace that left me in no good mood, for all that I had to pretend to the guests that I was happy. Since the daughter of a Cyrene house was wedding a noble ally, the Duke declared that the wedding journey of my sister and late friend would embark from the Ducal Docks, a tradition from our beginnings as a sea-people, and the bridal party trooped out all in costume like a pack of carnival monkeys, to the ships to bid them farewell. I bent to kiss Lilium, the trim of her elaborate wedding mask scratching my cheek. The silver wolf's head of House Brehill was pinned to her shoulder. "'Say the word, sister,' I whispered, still bent over her, "'and I will get you off this ship and to safety and hang the consequences.' "'Don't be a fool, Kai,' she said fondly. There was nothing else to do. Luca, my once friend, my present brother-in-law, stood beside her and I had to shake his hand or risk more scandal. When Luca grasped my hand, he pulled me to him and bent to my ear. "I'll tell you a secret, Guy," he whispered. I tried to wrest myself free, but his grip was too strong. The prince was quite right. "'about the outlander women refusing the mask for the scars of battle. "'It doesn't happen often, mind, but it does happen. "'My own sister, Grisile, was blooded so on the field when I was a child "'after she killed her first westerner. "'I don't see her much. "'She rides the borders most of the year. "'I think your sister will like her.' "'He released me, and I sprang back speechless to the dock. "'With a big grin, he nodded and stepped up to the deck.' "'beside my poor sister in her scarlet robes. "'Remembering that day, seeing the pear trees, "'I wonder of another thing I saw "'that I didn't think much of at the time, "'but the memory of which lies like a tiny, flawed jewel "'in a forgotten corner of an unused room. "'When Luca defied the Duke "'and cited an obscure version of the code-duello, a thing it seemed no one in Cyrene was aware of but him. I saw his eyes flick away, so briefly, towards the crowd, towards the women assembled like bright birds, towards my sister, and I remember she seemed to give an infinitesimal nod. The horse snorts beneath me and stirs dust from the road, and I glance at the orchards where the burned stumps of the trees, once blight-struck, are visible between the fresh green growth of the new stock. That day on the dock, as the boat pulled away and they stood side by side, beneath her great mask of scarlet and gold and beneath his brute scars, no, it's impossible. But I did have the slightest impression that they were both laughing at me.
0: And welcome back again. You know, when I think of masks, I generally think of superheroes. And when I think of superheroes, Batman's pretty close to the top of the list. One of the things I've loved about Batman for as long as I can remember is that his real mask isn't the cowl that he wears at night, but it's the face of Bruce Wayne. And I dig how in this story, despite a whole sex wearing expressionless masks, the most elusive mask is the one that covers an outlander's scars. Before we hop over to feedback this week, I'd like to make one other quick announcement and give a big congrats to Ken Liu, who was nominated for the Hugo Award for two stories, The Paper Menagerie, which we reprinted here at PodCastle last year, and also The Man Who Edited History, a documentary, in the novella category. Congrats, Ken. And also congrats are due to our sister podcaster, the Mighty Mighty Murr Lafferty, who was nominated for the John W. Campbell Award. Awesome job, Murr. Congrats. Alright, let's do a quick hit on the old feedback today for David J. Schwartz's Destiny with a Blackberry Sauce, read by Daniel Foley. It was the story of twins who do their damnedest to get out of the prophecy of being the chosen one by whatever means necessary. Generally, people liked it, although the dark humor was a bit too dark and cynical for some of those in our audience. Gary said... I kept thinking Destiny would win out in the end, but the brothers' increasingly inappropriate responses had me laughing out loud at this dark tale. I can't wait for the Cohen brothers to turn it into a movie. And Tim Pratt, yeah, that Tim Pratt, said, Dave Schwartz is one of my favorite writers, and this is one of my favorite stories of his. I love stories that snark about the whole fate and destiny thing. I thought the use of twins was inspired, and the birds and the fish are hilarious. Structurally, I love the short, numbered sections. They make for a fast-moving read or listen, and create a sort of collage effect where the true scope of the story becomes apparent only when you step back and consider it as a whole. Lovely stuff. We also got into a discussion on Star Wars, Anakin Skywalker, and who to blame for the prequels as the anti-chosen one, or something. I'm pretty sure somehow I ended up being at fault for the prequels. Good times, and you can swing on by our own little personal coliseum, forum.escapeartist.net, and let us know what you thought of today's story. And if you like what we're doing, please visit podcastle.org and consider making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors so we can bring you the best in fantasy fiction, week after week. And if you can't afford to make a donation, please blog, tweet, write a review on iTunes, or tell a friend about us. Thank you so much. Well, that was our show. We hope you enjoyed it. It's great to be back. And on behalf of all of us at Podcastle, Slush Scarifier and Leckie, Academy Sound Cadet Peter Wood, and your Barbarian Oaf and Highborn editors, Anna Schwend and myself, thank you so much for letting all of us share another story with you. We'll be back in a week with Christopher Rose, A Map is Another Word for Faith. Until then, must have been a mighty fine shindig. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Chuck Palahniuk wrote, I don't want to die without any scars.